Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we always have real talk about fertility and modern family building and show the incredible lengths people go to to build their families. We're recording live today during our annual Diversity of Infertility event in New York City. Today's episode is presented by California Cryobank, a top sperm bank in the U.S., shipping to over 40 countries with one of the largest and most diverse selection of sperm donors. Start your search today at cryobank.com. American lawyer, TV host, and best-selling author of Bet on Black, The Good News About Being Black in America, Ebony K. Williams, wants to add another role to all of her important work, mom. As a single woman, now with embryos that are frozen, she's hoping to start a family and is well aware of not only the shortage of black sperm for people like her who needed a sperm donor to make a baby, but also the stigma of being what she calls, quote, another black single mom in America. I am just a single black woman. So the storytelling around that, the ability of me to offer full identity and cultural competency for that child is compromised. So that was my consideration. And by the way, black women, women of color, white women every day who are doing this thing solo, also known as single mothers by choice, are having to make that decision. And many of them are ultimately for a lot of different reasons. It's not as if race and cultural identity is the only consideration for sperm donorship, right? We're also looking at age. We're looking at health. We're looking at genetic compatibility. We're looking at occupation. We're looking at a variety of things. So I felt very fortunate that I was able to identify a black donor who had the health, the genetic compatibility, the educational background that I also wanted. Ebony made reality TV history as the first black cast member on The Real Housewives of New York when she joined the show in season 13, and she continues to trailblaze as host and exec producer of Equal Justice with Judge Ebony K. Williams, a nationally syndicated court TV show, which also makes her the youngest judge on air. Ebony has shared her dreams of motherhood on various platforms, including on The View, where she says she first learned about anonymous sperm donation when she was a guest co-host. She's now working with a known donor. I'm so excited to hear more. Welcome, Ebony, to the Pregnant Podcast. Thank you, Andrea. I'm so happy you're here because I think, you know, it's so interesting on Instagram. We get snippets of people's lives, but here we could go a little deeper and really hear about your hopes, your dreams, your story. But before we go into fertility, I always like to backtrack and actually just learn more about you. You have such a long, impressive resume, and I couldn't even touch on all of it in the intro. But tell us more about yourself and what brought you to all the work you're doing. Thank you, Andrea. Really, I am just a regular black girl from Charlotte, North Carolina, born to a single mother who did not have the benefit of completing her formal education. And so I think like a lot of women of our generation, it was education, 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 really as a pathway to liberation and for survival. 
So I would say everything about me from being able to matriculate to UNC Chapel Hill uh, at you know, the ripe age of 16 years old on a full merit scholarship, to going straight to law school, to being sworn into the North Carolina State Bar at the age of 23, to practicing big law, then a public defender, then moving out to Los Angeles in 2010, not having a damn idea as to what I wanted to do, but just knowing I wanted to amplify the work, and I'll define the work as we continue this conversation, landing in talk radio of all places, a conservative talk radio at that, which really started for me, Andrea, a trajectory of being a voice of disruption, right? So what does it look like to go into spaces that are hostile to your positioning, your point of view, sometimes even your very existence, and be able to be impactful in change in ways that matter to others? And I would say that's the work of my life. That's the reason I wake up every day. So whether it's doing that work of disruption in cable news, whether it's doing it on reality television, whether it's doing it as a writer in the books that I've offered, as a podcaster, and now as America's youngest daytime television judge, my work is rooted in exemplifying the reality that whiteness, not white people, but whiteness as a social construct does not have an exclusive stronghold on intelligence, femininity, glamour, confidence, or humanity. And that is my life's work. Amazing. You've been so open about all of these things, so vocal. That, and this, this is me vocal. <laughs> this Stop is so, it. so appreciated. <laughs> but you've also been so vocal about something not everyone talks about, which is your desire to be a mom, to pursue single motherhood, to pursue sperm donation, all of these topics. So what made you make that decision to pursue single motherhood and then share it? So I, like so many, I think, women of our generation, was really adamant about establishing myself as a woman in my own power first and foremost, right? So I went to school. I went to more school. I went to school till school wouldn't have me anymore. And then I'm really, really proud, Andrea, of the career that I've built as a journalist, as an attorney. At some point along the way, the price went up, as the kids say, and I was able to start, you know, really seeing a fiscal correlation with the work I was putting in. And I think that's another thing that people are very tepid to discuss, which is the money of it all, the bag, the finances. You know, what's all this for at some point, if not to establish ourselves as fiscally empowered women? And I want to say that one more time, fiscally empowered women, because what we know for sure, at least in this country, is money is power no matter who has it. Money is power no matter who has it. And so I think that we represent really, I would say, the first complete generation of women who have had a relatively sizable amount of opportunities to really pursue that type of fiscal power. And so fast forward, I buy my first property here in Manhattan just last year, actually, here in Harlem, which I'm so very proud of. That was not an easy get in a city where your starter one bedroom, one bathroom home is $1 million. Let's be very clear about that. And so once I did that, that was the catalyst, actually, for me to feel I had something to offer a child by virtue of the tangibles. And I want to just be very vulnerable about that, not saying in any stretch that you need to be wealthy to be a mom or even a good mom. But this is Manhattan. And because I grew up with a single mother, I knew that one of and I know that one of the greatest challenges of my mother's journey was the fiscal struggle. 
Uh, and I want to go into that as we explore this conversation. When you think about single motherhood, it is often equated with struggle, it is often equated with without, it is often equated with putting your child in a poor position to succeed. And so I knew that ain't the way we want to go. So before I would even consider doing this thing solo, I knew I had to be in a fiscal position to be able to provide. Now, like most women, I've had my fair share of frogs looking for my prince. I was married and divorced in my late 20s. And I made a very conscious decision to end that marriage because I felt I wanted to really put everything I had into maximizing my career. That was a total personal decision that I just said, you know, nice enough guy, I'm not focused enough on being your wife for this to be successful. And that took me a very long time to be able to say out loud, but that was the reality. And so I put all of my chips in the Oprah basket, so to speak. And, you know, it has turned out remarkably well for me in a professional way. And I'm very proud of it. And I wouldn't trade it for anything today. And also, as I got older, I realized, and, I, and we hear this a lot, right, where women aren't totally convinced. I wasn't totally convinced that I always wanted to be a mom. So I'm not like some women where when I was a four-year-old little girl playing house and I'm the mommy. No, when I was four years old, I was playing president, literally. Um, and <laughs> I know you can't believe that. I know. Uh, <laughs> not me. Uh, and, and so those were my goals. And then as many older, and I say older in quotes now, 40 and up, which now I'm part of the club of 40 and up, which I'm really excited about. But older women would tell me, you know, just be patient with yourself because your lens on motherhood might evolve. And so just because of that little tidbit of advice, I casually froze eggs at 34. And I say casually because I was in a relationship with a man that I loved deeply at that time. I was so certain that that was going to be a go. And so I would never need to use these eggs, right? Because if anything, if motherhood was going to be my journey, it would be through natural conception with this man who I expected to be my husband. But just in case, because all the cool boss bitches were doing it, I froze eggs at 34. Actually, at the kind of suggestion of one of my sorority sisters, I'm a very proud member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. <laughs> and uh, that was like fine. I was in the fiscal position to do it. I had a great job at the time at CBS News. I will say that wasn't a part of the compensation package at that time. And I think that's worth noting. But I had a high enough income to where it wasn't uncomfortable for me to do one round. I'll get back to one round as we continue. So I did one egg retrieval. I got 10 eggs, bada bing, bada boom, put them on ice. I went about my life. Fast forward to 38. By this time, I had ended my engagement to that particular man. I had bought and closed on my property and I decided, shit, I want to be a mom. And I decided I wanted to be a mom, Andrea, because I realized that I was putting everything I had into the work, as I framed it earlier. I was putting everything I had into building, into asset collecting, into things that were really important to me. And then I realized something that was also important to me is legacy. Legacy. I'm building incredible things for who? Because I am a mere mortal and one day we will all leave this earth. And so it was very important to me that everything I was building have essentially somewhere to go, something to pour into. And so I decided really quickly, one thing about me, I'm an extremely 
decisive individual. I don't know if it's the Virgo in me, the lawyer in me, the only child in me. I am just not somebody who sits on the fence when it comes to big decisions or small ones. So when I decided I wanted to be a mom, I was very confident in that choice. And so I immediately started reaching out to resources. So I froze my eggs with RMA here in New York City. I immediately talked to my fertility doctor and told him my plan. They recommended with Enthusiasm, California Cryobank. So that was kind of the first step. Let's go through the catalog of potential baby daddies and decide what was important in my sperm donor selection process, which for me was a black donor, a man of black identity. And it was like my first wedding dress. It was the first page in the profile that I went on. I immediately saw a profile that was like it. I clicked on it. Within two seconds, bada bing, bada boom, two vials in the basket, done. (laughs) I swear to God, it was, uh, and I already knew the kind of trauma stories of black male sperm shortage. So it felt serendipitous, much like when I went into Hermes five years ago and they just happened to have a gold 35 Birkin, which never happens. Some of you know. (laughs) Anyways, and it was for me. I mean, I'm joking, but I'm really serious. That really happened. Uh, That was, it's a, yeah, it's a sign from God. That is. Yeah. (laughs) Both things, both the Birkin and the sperm. God bless. That means it's to be. And speaking of California Cryobank, I wanted to take a few brief moments to share more about them for those also looking for a good donor match. California Cryobank, a full-service sperm bank in the U.S., shipping to over 40 countries worldwide, has one of the largest and most diverse selection of sperm donors and has proudly helped tens of thousands of people create their families for over 45 years. The team at California Cryobank is comprised of compassionate and experienced medical directors, physicians, lab technicians, and genetic counselors. While their sperm donor program is the foundation of their service, they provide a full range of services for their clients, including cord blood banking and access to their California Cryobank sibling registry. And great news, pregnant listeners. Enter promo code SPERMISH to access free level two subscription to their donor catalog. Start your search today at cryobank.com. And now back to Ebony's story and what happened after she found her sperm donor match. I was given an option from my doctor uh, because I was 38, just turning 39 because this was fall of last year. And he said, listen, we've got two options, right? We can use the 10 eggs you froze at 34 or... We can do another retrieval right now and do a fresh insemination and see what we get. And that was probably the hardest decision of all of this for me, because God knows the statistical smarter thing would have been to do that retrieval right then. Right. Uh, We did a uterine ultrasound. I think at that time I had 12 or 13 follicles, whatever. And I just decided to roll the dice, which Mm -hmm. we'll see how this all turns out for me. I was like, I just don't have it in me for another retrieval. Mm, I get it. At that time, you know what I mean? Things were going so well professionally. I just frankly didn't want to do it. And so I said, let's thaw those babies out. So we did a thaw on the 10 eggs. We used one vial of the sperm. And the reason I bought two vials was because I was encouraged from medical professionals and friends. You say you want one kid. To this day, I swear in a stack of Bibles, I only want one kid. And then you never know. And there might be some scenario where you might want a second. So I bought the two vials for that reason. 
We used one vial. We inseminated the 10 eggs. I got two embryos. I did genetic testing. Only one is genetically healthy and then one is mosaic. I'll get to how I found that out because I didn't really handle that in an awesome way because I was just so expecting like five embryos. I just knew it was going to be five embryos. And then you do the research and you find the science. And so that's really where I am right now. And hopefully in the next weeks, we will be doing a frozen embryo transfer. Oh my gosh. Well, good yeah. luck for that. I, <laughs> We all know exactly where you are right yeah. now and we feel it. And it is interesting that on The View, mm-hmm. while you were just guest hosting, I guess, you learned about sperm donation? For those familiar with The View, you know, we have a hot topics segment at the top of the show. So we decided that we wanted to do a topic about the fact that some state was about to make it illegal to have anonymous sperm donation. And I remember getting into it with one of the fantastic hosts on the show, Sunny Hostin, because Sunny has also gone through IVF with her husband. But she took a very strong position that she thought making it illegal to have anonymous sperm donation would have a chilling effect on sperm donation. And I made the space for that point of view. But as a woman who just learned my own paternal identity, I just learned my father's name. I just saw my father's photo for the first time at 38. I had to vehemently disagree with her on that. I said, here's the thing, Sonny. While I appreciate the need for robust sperm donation, I believe every human being that is born into this world has a right to know their genetic identity on both sides. I think it's very important. I know it's important. I know that I've always had confidence and value in myself, but there was something that hit differently when I found out who my father was at the age of 38. There is an element of illegitimacy that I carried throughout my entire life up until that point, an element of otherized. Like, so you mean to tell me every single other human being born of this earth has a mom and a dad? Whether the dad's a deadbeat, whether the dad's shitty, whether the dad's present, whether the parents are divorced, they have a dad. And my whole life, I was told, I do not have a father. It's a very dehumanizing experience. So it was very important to me to say in that moment that I do believe the known identity of sperm donors at some point becomes really important. And what I didn't know, Andrea, is I was in that moment becoming <laughs> a bit of an advocate and some level of uh, proxy for the people of the donor-conceived community. And after that, I had some incredible education from that community and incredible Instagram lives. And to this day, I'm still in communication with those people. And now I am positioned to be a mother of a donor-conceived child, and I'm very excited about it. I love that. And I will tell you, actually, our last podcast guest recently was a donor-conceived adult. Yes, I saw that. Right, who has such gratitude around being donor-conceived, which is not a story we hear enough. Right. So the openness of knowing that as a child, hearing that this is your family story, your parent fought for you, this is your story, it makes all the difference. Look at Kerry Washington right now. Many of us are learning for the first time that she was learning in real time as a big grown A-list celebrity. She's donor conceived. She's donor conceived. Her parents were happily married, wanted her desperately, were having trouble with conception. And she is the product of a generous sperm donor. So I think these stories are starting to matriculate more and more, which is normalizing this process. So... um You talked about California Cryobank. You worked with them. You opened your phone and right away you found that match, which was very lucky. But we know that there's a shortage of black sperm donors, which is a multifaceted issue. Let's talk about that. So what are your feelings? What have been your experiences? What have you heard and learned about that? 
So I'd heard rumors, right, that if you're looking for a sperm donor and you're looking for a black one, you better ramp up your efforts because they're just simply statistically are not enough to go around. And I kind of was like, sure, whatever. And then I bought the premium Cadillac membership of, you know, the, the one where you get everything, right? The one where you get the audio of their story, the one where you get to know their identification and location when the child turns 18, which was very important to me. So by the way, that to Sonny's point, actually, also slimmed down the pool of men who were willing to be known donors. And out of maybe at that time, 312 donors total that were available on the site at that time, there were four black identifying. And that includes biracial men who were also black identifying. And then if you expanded that to people of brown complexion, so some level of melanin, so maybe some Southeast Asian, nine total. So there was just a disproportionate number of white identifying men and East Asian identifying men, which, you know, just was a reality. So now there comes the complication, right? What is my desire and ability? And I want to say that again, desire and ability to parent, especially solo, a child who has a racial cultural identity that is so very different than my own. And I say that because you know, this is 2023, so it is not in any way wild or unusual to parent a biracial child, a multiracial child. But typically when we see that, that is because there are two parents that have fallen in love that are able to both participate in the cultural identity of that multi or biracial child. That's not my situation, Andrea, right? I am just a single black woman. So the storytelling around that, the ability of me to offer full identity and cultural competency for that child is compromised. So that was my consideration. And by the way, black women, women of color, white women every day who are doing this thing solo, also known as single mothers by choice, are having to make that decision. And many of them are ultimately for a lot of different reasons. It's not as if race and cultural identity is the only consideration for sperm donorship, right? We're also looking at age. We're looking at health. We're looking at genetic compatibility. We're looking at occupation. We're looking at a variety of things. So I felt very fortunate that I was able to identify a black donor who had the health, the genetic compatibility, the educational background that I also wanted. The Washington Post recently put out a fantastic article letting people know about this black sperm donation shortage. And it was an anecdote in there that was funny, but not funny to me at the time because I was yet to find my donor at that time. And it was about two black women of sorority, which I don't know. I just feel like they were in my sorority, but whatever. And they had a falling out because it was it went like this. We're in the same sorority. Hey, girl, hey. Um, so I know we're both potentially on this single motherhood journey if circumstances lead us here. I just found some incredible sperm on the California Cry Bank website. I'm thinking about getting it. What do you think? Ooh, girl, I don't know. Da, 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 da. Okay, girl, talk to you later. Bye. Click. This bitch goes and gets the sperm. <laughs> Swear to God. this is You read it, right? And this is a whole thing. So that is how scarce high quality black sperm donation is. So when I found it, I went ahead and bought it real quick. It's like, girl, you on your own. No, it's, uh, and, <laughs> and that's actually another reason that I bought two vials to be transparent is because if God is amazing and I know he is and this whole thing goes well, what a lovely gift.
What a lovely gift to be able to give another black woman who desperately wants to mother in this way with a black donor. So mm. that is the reality. Now, why is there such a shortage of black sperm available on the marketplace? There's a few real reasons. One of them is the cultural stigma around black men being absent fathers, right? Like we're all aware of the narratives of deadbeat fatherlessness, particularly when it relates to black men. And let's talk about who sperm banks pursue to be sperm donors. They are not Joe Blows off the street. They are at MIT, they're at Stanford, they're at Harvard, they're at the most elite higher learning institutions in America by and large. So those black men are not looking to be a part of a narrative that says you've got 10 to 12 kids out here in America that you don't even know or support. That's a very dissuasive narrative for those men. So those are some things that I think from a society standpoint, we need to be more honest about and addressing if we indeed tend to remedy this shortage. Oh, 100%. I think, you know, it's interesting talking about societal stigmas. You've also talked about the stigma of the single black mom. And so can you elaborate on that? Sure. So I'm a very proud, confident black American woman, and I am the product of a single black mother who was what we call in the community a single black mother by circumstance, which is different than a single black mother or a single mother of any sort by choice. But historically in this nation, we're not very far removed from a Reagan era that talked about a welfare queen. What's a welfare queen? We all know it's a single black woman living on food stamps and welfare that is a pariah of America's society. She's a bottom feeder. She is somebody who sucks and sucks and takes and takes. And her methodology for survival is through having children all by herself. That's the narrative. That is the narrative. I think that if we're all being honest, most of us grew up with when we think about single moms. Very rarely are we thinking about single mothers as affluent, as educated, as providers, as women who are conscious of this decision-making and capable and positioned to give the very best of education, healthcare, and support, right? It's not just the money. Women who have an active network of friends and family and community that can pour into these children, although we are parenting solo. So that was something I had to really reconcile, right? So much of my work, I just told you guys, is rooted in being a living, breathing example of Black excellence, ascension, success. What does it look like to reconcile that against the traditional narratives of single black motherhood? I had to contend with that. Mm. I'm still contending with it. And ultimately, Andrea, I move forward with this decision because I believe that my capacity is strong enough to challenge prevailing narratives around single motherhood and single black motherhood to redefine what that looks like in this generation. But I think that your very presence, your voice, your advocacy, your platform, your public platform, sharing the story so vulnerably, so powerfully, and those go together, yeah. <laughs> is so important to shift that narrative, to show what it looks like today to pursue a path that, let's be honest, is not easy. Let's have real talk about fertility, our tagline at Pregnant-ish. Mm -hmm. What would you tell people who haven't been through this process as a single woman, as a person undergoing fertility treatments that they may not know? I think the first thing is the oversimplification that a lot of us hear as professional women, which is freeze your eggs and you'll be fine. 
I want to just address that directly. And I think it's extremely well-intentioned, and I think it's the starting point of something really good. But I think when we leave it there, when we leave it at freeze your eggs and you'll be fine, we do a tremendous amount of damage. We do a tremendous amount of damage around expectation. I think we do a tremendous amount of damage around outcome. So I was told that, and again, and I listened to that, and I'm glad that I did, and yet I have been in for a rudimentary education <laughs> ever since. So there's the freezing of the eggs. And then what about the conversation that says, how many frozen eggs do you need statistically to be in good position for one live birth? Or two. Okay, so for somebody like me who only got 10 in that first retrieval, in retrospect, I would have gone back the next day and did another retrieval. You know, I wish I had done. So that is my advice when I talk to younger women. If you have the resources, do two. You might even need three retrievals to bank as many healthy eggs as early as possible for this journey. Another thing is don't answer calls from the fertility clinic during the work day. <laughs> this is a big one. So uh, after I'd found my, you know, happenstance sperm donation and I, you know, was going through the embryo creation process, I was only thinking from a place of excitement and joy and possibility. So I remember I was about to go on live TV to do a segment on Good Morning America 3. And I'm backstage in a green room and I see my fertility clinic calling and they're calling to tell me how many embryos we have. And I'm so excited because I know he's about to say six. <laughs> so I take the call. Like literally, it's two seconds from going. I say, hi, this is Ebony. Yeah, real quick. Uh -huh. And I hear two and one has abnormal cells. And I'm devastated, like devastated and shocked and kind of pissed, to be yeah. candid. And then I can't process any of that because I got to go on Good Morning America 3 and talk about Meg the Stallion and her, you know, assault case, which is very important, which is very important. But I had to, you know, like, wow. Yeah, I know. You know? Yeah. So I learned something from that. So those are the types of tidbits, Andrew, that I share with women that are going through this. You know, um, as excited as you may be, as promising as the news may be, yeah. you really want to put yourself in best position to take it, whatever it is which probably means at home, which probably means if, you know, if you've got a partner with your partner or with your support, you know, person that you've designated, because it could be great, amazing news, or it could be really heartbreaking, devastating news. And you want to put yourself in best position to take that. I learned that finally in year five or six of this oh, process girl. where I, me. well, you know, I actually, first of all, the best accessory for fertility treatment patients are Jackie O sunglasses. Mm. I learned that because every time I'd leave the clinic on the train and be crying, yeah. those would go on. But yeah, I didn't, right. by year whatever, I would never open any news on mm -mm. the health, the grades, the whatever no. of right. embryos right. until no. I was in my bed. Sanctuary. Until <laughs> like, you're in your sanctuary, right? Yes, your safe place. Yes. Absolutely. And that, that's such an important tidbit. What do you hope in closing? Um, I could talk to you forever. I know. About I'm this, so sad this is in I just, well, yeah. no, it's, it's going to help so many. And this is why we do the Pregnancy Podcast. Yeah. But you personally, Ebony, what do you hope for your future? We're sitting here before you're about to embark on next steps with your fertility. So I'm so fortunate. I just left a brunch with a good friend of mine who actually lives in Tel Aviv. And so I was able to write a prayer for her to put into the Western Wall for me. And my prayer went like this. God, first of all, you're great. <laughs> Second of all, thank you. I pray for a successful transfer. 
And then I battled with, do I pray for a successful first transfer? And then, and then I went to just put it in God's hands. So God, I pray for a successful transfer. I also pray for a healthy, beautiful, impactful, happy child. And because this is America and I'm a black woman, I also prayed for a safe and healthy pregnancy and delivery because we need to talk about black maternal health, right? And all of those things are important. So I'm excited. I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic, but realistic in this journey. I know that there's a scenario in which this transfer takes and I'm a happy mom as early as next summer, which would be amazing. I checked that would make the kid a Leo slash, which is totally fine. Totally into it because that's very important. Uh, Or there's a scenario where this embryo transfer is less than successful and I'm in the position of another retrieval and round and round we go. And I'm really grateful to have what I feel like is the emotional capacity to take this journey all the way through to a healthy live birth. And I'm really Mm -hmm. grateful for you in this content. I've had friends do this show. Gigi, shout out to Gigi. Oh, Gigi, Gigi, Goldessa from Shots of Sunset. Goldessa from Shots of Sunset. Darla Miles. (laughs) Yes, Darla came on our podcast. Who's a mentor to me in news and she's incredible. Um, So the work that you guys are doing and recognizing that this is a space for women of all colors, all backgrounds, all demographic regions is really powerful. So thank you. I love it. Thank you, Ebony, for sharing your amazing story at this live event, the diversity of infertility. And where can people find you? Only on Instagram, I'm 40 up, so do not look for me on TikTok or <laughs> or Snapchat or any of that. It's Instagram for me, Ebony K. Williams. Thank Love you. it. And uh, so thank you. And thank you for listening to another inspiring episode of Pregnancy where we cover what's possible when science meets family. Until next time. 